You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on the show, I'm talking with Mikhail Levin. Mikhail, thanks so much for being with me today. Pleasure. Mikhail, we're going to talk about your show at um, L. Parker Stevenson. And the, the title of the show is Subaqueous which I'd, I'd like to begin with. And I know, you know, there's also a, a selection of, of uh, sites of American slave rebellion, but to talk about subaqueous, um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Maybe we could start with, with one of the, the, the prints in there. Um, they're untitled. They're from 2017. And, and, and of course do look like they're under the water or, or something like that. Um, it's, is there a specific reason yes. that title so back this? Yeah. Well, I, I until um, until three years ago, I was living in the Gowanus neighborhood in Brooklyn, and for for about ten years, I was working uh, photographing the canal, video videographing the canal also, and I did numerous series of pictures. Um, this group, Sabacus, is one that I had never shown before. Um, and that I always liked and I felt would fit very well in the gallery, uh, Al Parker Stevenson's gallery, uh, because it's a group of eight images and the room there is a warm uh, kind of domestic room, let's say, like a living room. Um, so that, that's kind of how that came about. <laughs> So, so these these images, though, these are under the water in Gowanus, and and it's hard to overlook the fact that Gowanus has quite a history there, and and a lot of your photographs, um, which we'll talk about after these, are are of sites where um, you know certain certain events in history happened. Uh, Gowanus Canal, it, it, unless this is a stretch on my part. Doesn't seem an exception in that way. Um, extraordinary things happened there. It was a very, very polluted area that's now um, been somewhat gentrified, and, and there's artists living there. Was that part of the narrative of these of these works? Um, yes, my my work really kind of follows two two lines. Let's say one is more about. Um, the the uh, is more kind of oriented towards nature and um uh, the landscape and the other is more about social structures of modernity and the canal actually fits into both um and but um i look at it primarily as being part of my my let's say landscape work nature work uh, but what's interesting with the canal is that uh, it has this incredible history and it kind of represents the whole industrial era. Um, it's it's kind of uh, like um, it epitomized, uh, you know, the Marxian phrase, all that solid melts into air. So um, wh one of the things that I was very focused on in, when I was working on the canal was to, to, to try to do photographs that are very immersive, that avoid the one-point perspective. And a lot of what I was doing was taken from a canoe rowing in the, in the canal and avoiding the horizon line to show the layers of sediment, uh, 
that were revealed with the rising and and falling of the tide, which kind of represented the history of the place too. Um, but I think that I, I've been trying very hard to find how to photograph the landscape today as opposed to historically, because I think the landscape is, is a kind of social construct. Um, what you have is nature, and then especially the camera is very good at organizing nature into a space uh, with a foreground and a background, you know, and compositionally. Um, but, but what it also does is that it removes the viewer from nature by doing that. You're kind of standing outside looking into the landscape. And I wanted to make pictures where I, where I felt I was right in the landscape. So I was in the canal, literally not in the water, but on the canoe on the surface, or these pictures where I was looking down from a, an embankment onto a shallow surface of water, um, or the video, which maybe we can talk more about um, in a few minutes, go on a spot side, which I'm showing at Powerhouse Arts at the moment, which in which the camera is rotating, basically rotating around me. I'm never there, but I'm always in the middle of the pictures. Does, um, does that make sense? <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah. So let's to talk more about those. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, these are gelatin silver prints, right? This is not. Yeah. Um, you're developing these in a dark room, and they're um, they're, they're not shot with a digital camera. This is uh, what kind of a camera is this shot with? Is this 35 it's, millimeter or large format? It's shot with a with a six by six camera, uh, so medium format, and that was another thing that I was very preoccupied with when I was doing those pictures. I wanted to do a series of pictures where I felt it that they really accentuated the gelatin silver format, that um, basically trying to do pictures that could only be silver gelatin prints. And and I think that this series, Abacuous, um does exactly that. You could do digital prints of those images, but I think they would have a different feeling. They wouldn't have the depth. Um, I, I know people would dispute that for me, but to me, those are really gelatin silver pictures with all the nuances of the grays that you can only get from that kind of fluidity of emulsion that you have on photo right. that, that, traditional that, that, photographic papers. Talk about yeah, and in mm -hmm. these are un unlike landscapes which we'll talk more about in a, in, in a moment as as well as the video but you, without a horizon without a sky these these subaqueous prints are, are are a range of grays right which is which is so much what silver uh, prints are about and and you don't have that that strong contrast um, which can be so attractive to use you don't have whites in mm -hmm. here or you certainly don't have bright whites right which is which is another challenge in, in the darkroom, I would think, to, to create uh, powerful prints like this because uh, you don't have that contrast. I appreciate your saying that. I, yes, those are very difficult prints to make, to execute. Um, I, and they're made on a matte paper that I've worked with for forever, for about 20 years. Um, and I think, I think 
I can say that I am a good printer. When it, so um, that's what I wanted to do here is try to make the best possible prints with images that were that lend themselves to that. And, um, and and these images certainly do because there's there's you know though they're um, though they're grays you're saying there's this process and the paper that you've been using for years, which I'm always amazed is still available. I know these papers are now um, more limited quantities, right? You're using um, silver emulsion, and this is a, a matte paper. Yeah, it's an Ilford matte paper. I'm very fortunate that it still exists. Um, I went over to it when they stopped making Protrigo Rapid, which was what I used before, an aqua paper. Uh, and um, now I kind of look at the Protrigo Rapid as being a little too pictorial, So I'm, whereas the Hilford um, paper is much more neutral. Um, and uh, yeah, as long as it lasts, I will keep printing and... Uh, when it when it disappears, I'll have to find another one, right? Do something else. Well, but I, 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 I mean, I want to talk about some of the other prints here. But first, uh, let's talk about the the video, the subaqueous video that's um, that's not showing at L. Parker Stevenson, but of course relates to this, right? And that is a, a digital format. Yeah, and that that's that's that video. It's called "Go on this broadside." It's ninety minutes long. And it follows the length of the canal from the head to to where it opens out into the into the bay, go on this bay. Um, and I'm photographing on the banks of the canal, kind of going from one side to the other in a almost random pa pattern, depending on where I could access the banks of the canal. Uh, and I'm. I'm, it's with, done with a digital camera because it's video and the camera is on a, a rotating motor. So uh, the shots are not always 360 degrees, but they can go from anywhere from 90 degrees to 360. Sometimes they even make two rotations um, during which you will see changes that happened as the camera in the, it's a three minute rotation. So you'll see changes that, uh, and the rhythm of the, of the video is kind of determined by those, those cuts and the rotations. Some are shorter, some are longer. Um, and it's showing the canal and all the activity that's happening around the canal. Uh, and I shot this 10 years ago when I did it, I had, I wasn't really thinking of recording the Guanas Canal as, the way it was then from a historical perspective, I was just fascinated by by the canal. And now when you look at the canal, there's almost nothing left of what I photographed. All those warehouses have been torn down. Condos are going up. Uh, the area, the sounds are totally different. You don't have all the industrial sounds of the cement mixers, of the uh, recycling facilities, of um, of the bridges opening and closing. So it has become a kind of historical record, but that wasn't my, my first intent. And, and um, it's so interesting, you know, to be using video, of course, and, and the, the other prints in this particular show at um, Al Parker Stevenson 
or even more recent. These are 2023 prints that revisit um, a way of working that, that you've done for quite a while, right? These are looking at previous rebellions. Um, the one I'm, I'm looking at now is U.S. Highway 17 at Wallace River, South Carolina, which have kind mm-hmm. of a, a haunted feeling almost to them, um, but, but also beautiful prints and, of course, full of an incredible range of, uh, of, of grays and whites. Uh, to talk about this one, the Stono Rebellion, 1739, yeah, let's talk about this approach because this is a very recent image and we're, we're talking about places yeah. where history occurred. Yes, this is, this is what I'm working on now, basically. I've been working on it for three years. I'm still, still going. I've photographed uh, 14 rebellion sites so far. Um, I, I, I've, as I mentioned before, I've, I've kind of had this line of work looking at um, places that are related to to modernity and to history, but that are just very common everyday places, and that kind of carry in them the events that happened there. 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, I kind of, one of the early projects I did along this line was about my father's experience in the Second World War. And that was called War Story. He was a war correspondent. And after the war, he wrote an autobiography in which he described the three months period when he uh, followed the advance of the American army from starting from Paris, going east into Germany, and the discovery of the concentration camps, um, and the, the reporting he did on the liberation of the concentration camps. And what I did was, 50 years later, go back with his book, and following his book, redoing the same journey, and photographing the places he described um, the way they were 50 years later. So... Um, that started this kind of interest in 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 these kind of projects. Then I did they, uh, then I did a project about um, the the triangular slave trade by photographing uh, three sites: one in France where the ships would set out, one in West Africa where they would exchange produce for. Uh, human flesh and one in the Caribbean where they would exchange the slaves for the produce of the plantations which they then brought back to France um, and so with with this slave rebellion project uh, I, I kind of became interested in it when I read uh, Kendai's book Stamped from the Beginning and he speaks about a number of rebellions, and I was just amazed to uh, to learn of them, and amazed that they were hardly marked in the landscape. And I thought this was, first of all, the kind of project I do, and and I was just fascinated by the way that these slave rebellions were not spoken of, spoke about, spoke to the situation that we still live in today. Um, in terms of race relations, and so, this, and this, and this, yeah. this, this is, if, if I can just ask about that, so these are yeah, these are very powerful images, and um, 
of a number of, of different situations, like the slave insurrection panic of 1856. Mm-hmm. So what you said about your father, and I know both your mother and father were writers, and it sounds like, you know, that that experience that your your father had or that you interpreted as a as a child um uh however you did of um of seeing the concentration camps being liberated had a had a profound uh, effect on you in in terms of how you're how you're looking at the world and and history yes i think both my parents were very socially aware uh they both went through the second world war um my mother was widowed uh to a, a young man she had married before she married my father uh my father was traumatized by the experience of witnessing the camps and it marked him for his the rest of his life and so this was doing war story was a way for me to try to understand what my father went through but also uh, had to do with my relationship to Europe. I, my mother was French, I should mention, and my father American. I had lived between the two countries as well as Israel uh, my whole childhood. So uh, this was a way also of getting to know myself. And um, when I did the, uh, the Triangular Trade Project, Notes on the Periphery, um, it was because of reading about the Holocaust, I started thinking, well, where, where did this industrialization of death come from? And a lot of historians pointed at me towards the slave trade as as the, an early example of this. And that's, and that's where um, I kind of saw this intense link between the development of modernity as a social economic system uh, and the and the slave trade and the whole basically the emergence of capitalism at that time um, yeah that's such an interesting line to draw it's, it's it's not one we hear about often right it's not one I, I i feel like i've read about much but but to draw that line between World War II, Auschwitz, and, and as you're saying, um, this kind of industrialization of death. Um, that's that, that's so fascinating to to draw a parallel between that and, and the slave trade, because of course that's that's exactly um, what mm-hmm. it is. Uh, but but it's not a it's not a perspective we hear often, or I haven't heard often from artists or writers. Well, it's kind of the world I grew up in. I did another project. Um, called Christina's History, which traced another uh, branch of my family's. This is on my mother's side. Um, My mother's grandfather was Polish um, and lived in a small town in Poland during the arrival of industrialization with textile mills. Um, And then his son migrated to Portugal and became an engineer a mining engineer, and lived in Portugal at the end of the colonial era in Portugal. And then that man's daughter went to live in one of the Portuguese colonies and witnessed the liberation from Portugal and the kind of post-colonial period. So there, too, I photographed in Poland uh, and then in Portugal and then in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa, 
showing the places where these people live their lives the way they are today and relating the stories. So it became a kind of metaphor for, again, for the evolution of modernity from early industrialization to through colonialism to post-colonialism. Um, and, Mikhail, and, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. It's, I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, no, were you about to say something else? I don't, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 Mikhail, I, I want to just say for those listening, the show is running through December 2nd, so I want to urge people to see it and to follow the links in here. I, I also want to ask you one more question, a little off topic. It's it's just fascinating talking about this, and it's a it's a very beautiful show. Um, I'm always curious what what everyone's reading. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, well, one of the books I'm reading is the is a biography of the Kooning uh, by Mark Stevens and uh, Annalena Swan, um, and. It's just—it's an incredible, incredibly detailed, fascinating biography. One of the things I liked coming in it was reading about. I, I should mention that I live on Long Island now, and the Kooning, of course, uh, at one point left New York and went to live further out east on Long Island. But what um, they say about him is how, when he started painting the light and the landscape in Long Island, what he was trying to do was uh, the same thing that I've been preoccupied with, uh, which is being being immersed in the landscape and not not photographing a scene of the landscape or a body in the landscape seen from the outside, but actually a body in the landscape. So, of course, what I'm doing is not very original. This has been worked on by a lot of people for, it's been a preoccupation for a long time. Uh, but I was pleased to read that in in this uh, biography of this uh, European-American, I guess. I have a connection, uh, a similarity there too, although I have not lived as tortured a life as his, as him for sure. Absolutely, yeah, fascinating. Um, Mikhail, I want to thank you for talking with me today. It's really been a pleasure, and just I want to congratulate you on this uh, beautiful show. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been great talking to you. I appreciate your questions, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.